there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Secret of Serenity. We live in a world of turmoil, and we need to learn quietness. We need to learn to keep a quiet heart and to trust that God is indeed in charge. And this morning, as, as I was praying, I just kept thinking of that verse, wait on the Lord, and he shall strengthen thine heart. And that was what I needed this morning. I always feel very inadequate before I get up to speak. And I, of course, pray that God will give me the words that he wants me to use. And so I kept thinking of that wonderful verse, wait on the Lord and he shall strengthen thine heart. Now, as Christian men and women, and I do want to acknowledge the fact that there are some, women, some men here, and I think you're very brave, but I do appreciate your coming. Uh, as Christian men and women, we should be asking ourselves quite earnestly in the presence of God, what kind of a difference does God want me to make in this world? Obviously, God wants Christians to make a significant tangible, visible difference. The secret of serenity. The great French mathematician Pascal wrote out a little piece of paper which I'm told was sewed into the lining of his coat and discovered after he died. And this is what he wrote. I stretch out my arms to my Savior, who after being foretold for 4,000 years came on earth to die and suffer for me at the time and circumstances foretold. By his grace, I peaceably await death in the hope of being eternally united to him. And meanwhile, I live joyfully, whether in the blessings which he is pleased to bestow on me or in the afflictions he may send me for my own good and taught me how to endure by his example. That kind of a prayer would bring a measure of serenity, wouldn't it? If we would stretch out our arms to the Savior and peaceably await death. At my age, I think about death a great deal, probably every day. And I think how wonderful it would be if the Lord didn't require of me many more decades. When I passed the age of 70, I thought, well, Lord, that's what the Bible says, is a normal lifespan. You're not going to require more than that of me, are you? And uh, he has required more. But I want to be like Pascal and peaceably await that death. But in the meantime, of course, it's my job to live here and to present through the way I live the secret of serenity. Do we look for lust, for power, for visibility, for accomplishments, for position. The world, of course, is always seeking for things of that nature. But it ought not to characterize us as Christians. 
what we ought to want is to love God and to make God loved. Ponder in your heart, what is your ambition? What is it that you want more than anything else in the world? I think of Jesus and his mother Mary, and I cannot imagine that either one of them was looking for anything that the world was looking for. Mary, of course, was probably just a teenage girl. Scholars tell us that when the angel came into that humble home in Nazareth, the child was really just a child because a Jewish girl would have been betrothed somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14. So God sent the angel Gabriel to that humble little home in Nazareth to give her a staggering piece of news. Certainly Mary was not looking for worldly accomplishments and we can't help wondering how she received those words. So staggering that she was to become the mother of the Son of God. And yet her response was, behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say, or as one translation is, be it unto me according to thy word. And I trust that that would be the attitude of each of us. Mary didn't ask any questions other than the one very obvious one, but how can this be because I don't have a husband? And then, of course, she was given the explanation that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and that she would conceive and bear a child. When Jesus came to earth, was it for worldly acclaim? He said, I do always those things that please the Father. And that ought to be our motto, too. Always those things that please the Father. Whether it's in the secret place that nobody's looking, or in our homes where somebody is definitely looking, in our neighborhood, in our churches, in our business, we want to represent Jesus Christ and to exhibit in our lives the secret of serenity. When I think of the serenity of Jesus as he moved step by step through those three last years that we know anything about, we know very little about anything before he was 30 years old, but he moved in obedience to his father. He had no place to lay his head. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a, he never wrote a book. He never founded a university or anything like that, but he moved with calm, bright serenity through the days of his life. And it didn't make any difference what the weather was. He was following his father's will. The word serenity means shining with an unobscured, steady light, undisturbed, unruffled, tranquil, quiet, can we characterize ourselves as fulfilling those? His serenity brought what meant bright, clear, calm, shining with unobscured, steady light. And he was undisturbed and unruffled. How many of us could claim that we are always unruffled? 
we women particularly, I think, are likely to get all bent out of shape and stewing and worrying about things. And you're looking at a woman who is a born worrywart. I come from lines of worriers on both sides of the family. It's a family trait, and we all recognize that it is not something that God approves of. We are not meant to worry. The Bible says don't worry about anything, whatever. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Who of us can claim that we never worry about anything? And yet, that is the command, isn't it? Serenity is calmness of mind, an evenness of temper. And the very moment when you feel like lashing out at somebody and giving them a piece of your mind, just look up to the Lord and ask him to give you that evenness of temper. Amy Carmichael told her children how she learned to just walk around in that beautiful place, Donavor, which she had founded for them. Somebody brought me a cup of water out there, but I don't see it here. Is it oh, it's underneath. Thank you. <coughs> Amy Carmichael would say that as she walked around the beautiful compound where she had all those 700 children. Of course, she was always overwhelmed with much more than she could possibly do. But she learned to look up with many little looks of love, she said. She would just raise her eyes to the Lord. And I find myself doing that, just as she did, when I find myself overwhelmed, which is practically every day. <laughs> always too many things to do, too much work at my desk, too many phone calls coming in, too many letters to answer, too many this and that and the other thing. And of course, I am a housewife, just in case any of you didn't know that. I cook and I clean and I make soup for Lars and I iron and, you know, just most of the things that any housewife would do. But I can't say that it's undisturbed and unruffled and always tranquil and quiet. But it is amazing what tranquility God brings when I just look up to him and say, Lord, help me. One of my life verses is Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. It's a wonderfully calming verse, Isaiah 50, verse 7. I want to bring calmness to other people. I want to have calmness of mind, evenness of temper, and to be an instrument of God's peace. You know that beautiful poem, that beautiful prayer by St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. O Divine Master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. 
I trust that the Lord is going to make each one of us a little bit more like those instruments of peace. Now, for those of you that are sitting there wondering, when in the world is Elizabeth Elliot going to give us some point that I can write down in my notebook? Um, this is it. Number one is the secret of serenity has its source in God. The secret of serenity has its source in God. And Jesus demonstrated exactly what that means by the way he received people, whether they were hostile or loving, by the way he moved from one point to the next in perfect harmony with his Father's will. And that's the way he wants you and me to discover that same secret of serenity. I want to find it in the same source in which Jesus found it, in the will of his Father. He was able to say, I do always those things that please the Father. I would love to be able to say that. I can't, not honestly, not every day, but it certainly is my aim in life. 1 John 2.17 says, The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear, but the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. I want to give you that again because I'm going to read you a remarkable testimony by one man who certainly exhibited that in his life. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear, but the one who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. And this man, whose name was Harry Beck, was told that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is the real name. But it is progressive and incurable and deteriorating the motor nerves in the body, never affecting the brain. All muscles eventually are paralyzed. Death comes as it invades the muscles which control breathing. And this was written back in December of 1995. By that time, his arms, his hands, his swallowing, his chewing, and his speech muscles were greatly affected. The only person in the world by that time who could understand anything that he said was his wife, and she was quite remarkable in being able to understand and take down verbatim what he said. And he asked her to take dictation from, from him so that he could let the men at work know his testimony. And so she, she wrote this, During Sunday morning worship service at our church, the Anderson Christian Fellowship on New Year's Eve, the question was asked, What did you trust the Lord for in 1995? And what will you be trusting him for in the new year? On our way home, I said to Harry, I sensed that if you could talk, you would like to have answered those questions. Harry said yes. In fact, this morning before we went to church, I was thinking to myself that this has been the best year of my life. Now, of course, it was only she that would have been able to understand that that was what he said to her. That afternoon, he asked me to sit and take down his thoughts as he spoke very, very slowly, one word at a time. 
And this is what Harry said. As we count down the final hours of 1995, I can truly say that this has been the best year of my life. When I was diagnosed in November of 94, and as we walked out of Dr. Ray's office, I told my wife that we had been learning to live one day at a time. And that is the way we are going to live this. Now, I hope you'll take this as a personal testimony to you, because although it's very unlikely that there's somebody in here suffering with that particular disease, we, every one of us needs to learn to live one day at a time. We get so messed up and bent out of shape when we forget that. God only gives us this present day, this particular Monday is what we have right now, isn't it? So he said, you and, you and I have been learning to live one day at a time, and that is the way we are going to live this. Then, as we were in the car on our way home, Madeira, that was his wife, asked me what I was feeling on the inside, and I said, most people will think I'm crazy, and you're going to think I'm crazy too, but I feel like I'm on a journey. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm so excited. I know that this was the Holy Spirit speaking to me and through me. Three days after the diagnosis, I asked Bill Crawford to go to Southern Bell and tell my coworkers of the diagnosis. I asked him to be sure to tell them two things. Number one, I know this is for my good. I just want God to be glorified. Number two, this is not a curse. This is a blessing. Again, this was the Holy Spirit speaking not only through me, but to me. At that time, I had no idea of the blessings he had in store for me. As I look back over 95 and the last two months of 94, I would never have dreamed that God would have blessed me and my family the way he has through family members, friends, the body of believers here at the fellowship, and people I don't even know. God has in love placed me in a position to be totally dependent on him. He has taught me so much this year. I have learned to love and to be loved. I've learned patience, like giving my needs to him and trusting his timing and his methods. Bottom line, I have learned to trust him, try him, and prove him. Two of my greatest blessings are the wife and daughter God gave me for such a time as this. I'm totally dependent on them for my daily physical needs. In my eyes, I am not worthy of all God's blessings, but I am, must think I am. And those words, I am, were capitalized using one of the names of God, I am must think I am because he just keeps on blessing me. I look forward to 1996 with great anticipation. I am trusting in the Lord that it is going to be even better than this last year. And he signed it Harry Beck, and this was for his co-workers at Southern Bell. Then in 1996, in April, in response to his neurologist's question, as your professional, I need to know when breathing becomes difficult, do you want to go on a ventilator? Harry answered via his alphabet board. He could make signs on the alphabet board. Dr. Ray, no ventilator. I'll breathe as long as God wants me to breathe. And when I'm not breathing anymore, God is calling me home. And God called him home July of 1996. I've seen his wife several times since then. And she's a woman that exhibits this secret of serenity. 
and obviously Harry learned that secret. It's not impossible for any of us. In Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11, we read, Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And I'm sure that we would all agree that no discipline for the present seems pleasant, but painful. But if we respond as God wants us to respond, in trust, in serenity, in peace, we will discover that later on it will produce a harvest of righteousness. Now for point two, you note-takers. Obedience. Obedience to the will of God equals peace. Jesus said, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. I grew up in a home where obedience was the rule, and we understood perfectly well what our parents meant, and they meant it the first time they said it. Just the other night, a couple of nights ago, I was sitting in the airport in Boston, watching an absolutely helpless couple try to discipline or try to deal with a screaming child. Any of you ever seen that scene anywhere? It is just devastating to realize how little so many of these young parents have any idea of what discipline really is. And of course the child was screaming and the mother would pick her up and throw her over her shoulder and the child would scream and kick and so the mother would put her down again and the child would throw herself on the floor and scream and scream and scream. Of course, the whole airport had to listen to this, not for just a few minutes, but it went on for at least a half an hour. And it was all I could do to keep from getting up and going over there and making one or two tiny suggestions. <laughs> uh, but in today's world, it's very hazardous to interfere with anybody's disciplining. But in our home, we knew exactly what our parents meant when whatever they said. They meant it the first time. And delayed obedience was always treated like disobedience. It wasn't good enough for us to say, oh, but I was just going to. No, when Mama spoke, we were expected to jump. And so obedience was the rule in our home. But we sang very often in our family prayers, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It thrills me now when I visit my grandchildren to see how they sing trust and obey. A little five-year-old, she's the youngest now, and there's a seven-year-old, and the two of them are just great friends, it's Theo and Sarah, and they put their arms around each other and they sing, and it just thrills this grandmother's heart. But there is a certain kind of serenity that my daughter has learned, which she brings to her household. And I give thanks to God for that home, for that father and that mother. Obedience 
to the will of God equals peace, and obedience to the will of our parents equaled peace. Now, my brother Dave, I have four brothers, and my brother Dave was probably the most mischievous of all of us and the most difficult to deal with. And he, he, was, he could be very, uh, very flippant sometimes, and he got punished for it, of course. But there was one occasion when he had been, as my mother used to say, tuning up for spanking. Uh, there was something about Dave. I mean, every day he would do these little needling things, not all of which deserved a real full-dress spanking, but by about Wednesday of the week, Mother would say, well, you know, Dave, you have been tuning up for a spanking, and you are going to get it. And she said, I have my stick handy, and I'm going to use it. It was a little 18-inch stick, just a, really just a little bush off the bush in the backyard. She said, I have my stick handy, and I'm going to use it. And Dave said, I have my legs handy, and I'm going to use them. <laughs> well, you can be sure he didn't get away with that one. His punishment was more severe than it would otherwise have been. And then there was an occasion when she told him that he was to sit on a chair in his bedroom until she came and told him that he could get off the chair. And so when the time had elapsed, she went up and the door was still closed. She opened the door and the room was empty. Dave was not there and the chair was not there. <laughs> the phone rang right about that time and a lady across the street said, Catherine, did you know that your son is sitting in a chair on the roof? <laughs> well, I'm sure that my, my parents, both of them, had to think of more and more uh, ways in which to control that child, Dave, but he seems now to probably be the most serene of all the four of us, all the six of us. <clears throat> but obedience was a principle, and there is no obedience without trust. If you trust God, he is going to show you what to do, isn't he? Every time I'm asked to speak, I think, Lord, what do you want me to say this time? I have no idea who will be in the audience, what needs they have, what talks you want me to give. And so I have to trust and obey and believe that when I have laid it before the Lord and asked for his guidance, that he will indeed give me. Probably one of the most difficult decisions that I had to make in my life, I've had a few of them, was way back in 1956. My husband Jim Elliott had been killed, as some of, many of you probably know, there were five missionaries that were killed by Alca Indians in Ecuador in 1956. And I was left with my 10-month-old daughter, and we lived on a jungle station. There were no other missionaries there, so I was desperately trying to do everything that Jim and I had done together, which obviously I could not accomplish. But I had put myself totally at God's disposal and, and prayed what seemed rather absurd prayer at the time. I just said, Lord, if there's ever anything you want me to do about the Alka Indians, I'm available, never supposing for a moment that there would be anything that God was going to ask a widow with a baby to do. Since I had my hands full with the Quechua Indians with whom I was working. But the day came when I got a radio message from another missionary asking me if I would be willing to come to his station 
to stay with his wife for a few days because he was going to be going away on business and his wife really didn't like to stay alone on a station. And I thought it was rather interesting that he would call a widow who was always alone on a station to come over and help his wife who didn't want to be alone for more than three or four days. But this was one of those occasions when my instant reaction was, no, I'm not going over there. I have all this work to do. But the Lord did seem to be speaking in that still, small voice and saying, I want you to go. And I thought about it and prayed about it for several days, and I didn't want to go, but it seemed quite obvious that the Lord was telling me that I should. And so I took my little daughter and went to this other station, I had to go by missionary aviation plane. And I was there for several days with this lady when, right about noontime, two Quechua Indians arrived at the door and said, Senora, we've got two Alka women at our house. Now the Alkas were this so-called savage tribe that had killed the five men. And these Quechua men said to us, do you want to see them? And there wasn't any question in my mind that God, this was, this was God's answer to my prayer. Lord, if there's anything you want me to do about the Alcas, I'm available. And lo and behold, he took me up on it. You know, we often make promises to God. We certainly don't expect him to take us up on it. But this seemed an unequivocal opportunity. And so they said to me, you got to hurry. If you make up your mind and if you want to come to our house, we've got these two Alka women there. But he said, they said, we left home when the, when the sun was over here, and the sun's up here now. We've got to get home by the time the sun's over here, so hurry up. So they gave me about five or ten minutes to throw a few things into an Indian carrying net, and we set off down the trail. My hostess, the lady with whom I'd been staying, offered to take care of Valerie, my daughter, and she said, you just go on down and see what's happening, and then we'll just see what happens next. The entire way down there, it was a six-hour walk, and constantly the Indians were pointing out to me little signs and signals that they interpreted as places where the Alcas were hiding. Uh, for example, there would be a place where the grass was sort of flattened, and they'd see, say, they, he would, they would say, you see, that's what they do. They lie there in a place like that, and then when somebody like us comes along, they spear us. Or there's a twig broken, and they say that's how they communicate with each other through the jungle. They know who, who has gone where by the way the twig has been broken. So they were scared to death. These two men both had guns over their shoulders and were constantly reminding me that we were walking into a death trap. This was just one of those occasions when God was asking me, will you trust me? Will you do what I say? Will you obey me? And I was putting one foot in front of the other all I knew then was God has opened a door. These two Indians know the way. Only God knows what's going to happen when we get down there. And so he gave me peace. I can say that I really didn't feel terribly upset or edgy. I just followed these two Indians one step at a time. And obviously you know that the outcome was not that I got speared to death, here I stand. But that was the beginning, that was the first opportunity where anyone was able to go in to live with the people who had killed the five missionaries. And so my daughter and I went in 
a year later, we took we had these two Alka women live with us for almost a year. Of course, I could not understand a word that they were saying. They couldn't understand a word that any of us were saying. They didn't know Quechua, didn't know Spanish, didn't know English. And so they came and lived with me, and it was a rigorous exercise to try to learn their language when there was no interpreter. And of course, they thought that what we were talking was just mumbo-jumbo, and it didn't have anything to do with the language, and they thought we were really terribly stupid. But toward the end of that year, I felt that perhaps God was indeed indicating that he was going to give us the opportunity to go and live with the Alcas, with the tribe. Because these two women, in the very few words that I felt that I was pretty sure I understood that they were saying, they said, when that palm fruit is ripe, we're going home, and we want you to come with us. And so that's what happened in 1958. My daughter Valerie and I, Valerie was then three years old, uh, Rachel Saint, the sister of the pilot, Nate Saint, who had been killed, and I were able to go in with those two Alka women. And that was the beginning of, of bringing that tribe to Christ. But it was a matter of simple obedience. If you're anything like me, you have all sorts of ifs, ands, and buts when God or anybody else tells me to do something. Lars drives, it drives Lars crazy. You know, he'll ask me to do something and then I have a whole list of questions about what about this, what about that, have you thought about this? And there are times when the Lord is just saying, trust me. God had opened a door and it was a simple opportunity, not easy. Now we do need to make a distinction between simple and easy. God's word is simple. It's clear, it's unequivocal, it's simple. We do know what he means when he says, do not resist an evil person. You know, it does say that in Matthew 6. Don't resist an evil person. Have you ever argued with God over that? He says, if somebody takes your coat, give him your cloak. If somebody wants you to walk one mile, walk two miles. You know exactly what that means, but we don't want to do it. Obedience is exactly what God requires of us, and it is simple. Just do what I say. And I can hear my mother saying to me over and over again, because I was a debater from the day I was born, I guess. I was always debating with my mother. Whatever she wanted me to do, she'd, I'd give her six reasons why I didn't think I could do it. And she would say to me, Bets, don't argue with me. Do what I say. It took me a while. Number three for the note-takers, shine with unobscured, steady light. Now, if you've already lost track of the first two, number one was the secret of serenity, number two is obedience, and number three is shine with an unobscured, steady light. Have you stopped to think about the life of Jesus in the womb of Mary? Have you thought about his total abandonment of himself and the willingness to be the Lord of the universe who comes down and is an embryo in the womb of this little Virgin Mary? He was willing 
to be totally changed into that small human being. Think of the radical restrictions. Think of the place in which he had to be born, that miserable cowshed, dispossessed of glory. He left his throne. He came out of the ivory palaces. I don't suppose very many of you know that beautiful hymn. It was my, one of my favorite hymns when I was just a little girl. My Lord hath garments so wondrous fine, and myrrh their texture fills. Its fragrance reached to this heart of mine with joy my being thrills. Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. He was willing to do what his father asked him to do. He had to be dispossessed of his glory. He had to, be, he had to leave his throne above. He had to accept poverty. Mary and Joseph were poor. There was never anything but poverty for him as he lived here on earth. And he was restricted by time and by space. That's a mystery, isn't it? When we think of the Lord of the universe consenting to be restricted by time and space. He had to walk from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho. He had to eat and drink and sleep and be tired, just like any other human being. But he did that for you and me and showed us with his perfect serenity as he fulfilled day by day, step by step, the will of his Father. And he's saying to you and me today, will you follow me? I will help you. I am going to help you to do this. How wonderfully he helped Harry Beck to give that testimony in spite of his deep suffering. I don't know anything about your life today. I don't know what you may be dealing with, suffering with, perhaps angry with God about. But you know that you will not find serenity until you accept the will of God. One of Amy Carmichael's mottos, which has certainly become one of mine, is, in acceptance lieth peace. What does it mean? It just means, yes, Lord. I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know what you're going to do with me. I don't know how you're going to fix this problem, which seems insoluble. I don't know what's going to happen next week. But Lord, you know. You've got the whole world in your hands, and I want to trust you. I think of Jesus' last hours with his disciples. As he sat there, he was able to sit at the supper and eat and break bread with them and able also to get down on his knees and to wash the feet of his disciples. The dirtiest job that a, an Eastern household servant had to take was the washing of feet. And so Jesus represented so clearly and so unequivocally, this is what I want you to do. He said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you must wash one another's feet. And so he got down and washed the feet even 
of the one who was going to betray him and the one who would deny him. Serenity, the secret of serenity. He went into the garden. He was captured. He was taken to the council, to the praetorium. He was flogged, stripped, beaten, ultimately nailed to a cross. And as he hung there on that cross, he was able to say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The secret of serenity. An evenness of temper, even in the midst of horrors. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. May we receive the peace of Christ this morning. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>